We're carrying on in the book of Jonah. It's our second last week, the penultimate week. Next week is our last one, and then we're into the book of Nahum. And um, it's all of chapter 3 today, so I'm going to read for you just that. Chapter 3 has 10 verses in it. So it's Jonah 3, verses 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through, published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Sorry, and he did not do it. That's the word of the Lord. So, let's begin with C.S. Lewis. In his uh, many books on the Chronicles of Narnia, there's one book called A Horse and His Boy, and it tells the story of uh, a boy named Shasta. And Shasta is, a, is an orphan who is on a boat, and as a baby, he is discovered at the shore by a fisherman named Arshish, and this guy um, fought, raises him, but then eventually tries to sell him off as a slave. And the boy meets a talking horse, remember we're in Narnia, and they, they agree to run off together because the man he's being sold to is, is a tyrant and he's cruel. So they run off together and try to find freedom. And as they're doing this, there's all sorts of adventures they go through, which you could expect in a children's story. And some of them, for instance, are uh, on very early on, he's riding in, in the night, and he hears lions. And the lions begin to chase him, but he realizes he's not the only one being chased, and he meets up with another girl named Erebus, who is also fleeing some, her life to try to find some freedom. Uh, I won't spoil the whole story. And um, they get together, and then they, they start to travel together. They have two horses that talk and two humans, and it's a wonderful story. But they meet other adventures, and there's always lions involved and cats involved. So at one point he spends a night in a cemetery, and there's a cat that comes and comforts him. Another time jackals are going to attack him, but lions drive them away. But then there's another time when he's trying to flee for, to a king for safety, and he's, his horse is getting tired. He's not going to make it. And lions start chasing them, which makes it even worse. So you're being chased. Erebus gets scratched by one of the lions and nearly, really badly hurt. So all of this happens. And then at one point later on in the book, Shasta, this boy, is at night and he's walking, he's on his horse, and he realizes he's being followed. And not just being followed, but there's something on his left. And that thing is walking there on his left and it's terrifying him and it just, it's silent, not moving. He doesn't know what it is. So eventually he gets up the nerve to speak to it. And he starts telling, after a moment, this voice, he starts telling it everything that he has gone through. And here is the interaction they have. He says about all the lions. He said, the voice says, there was only one, one lion, said the voice. 
What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing. The voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses new, the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay as a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight to receive you. And he goes on and says he's also the one who scratched and brought pain to, one, to Erebus. And what Lewis is getting at here and throughout the stories, and it's a biblical theme, is this. God is actively involved in our lives. He's actively involved mysteriously, and we'll try to unravel some of this, even in the negative things that happen to you. He's some, there's something going on there where God allows, permits, and sometimes even brings things to us that cause us concern. What's he doing? Why is he so active in our lives? And in this passage, specifically, we could focus on Jonah, but we're going to instead focus here on God's pursuit of Nineveh. Why is it that God is active in Nineveh's life? What is he doing? Where is God in this story for Nineveh's sake and in their history and in their life and the good and the bad? Where, what's happening? And as we do that, you're going to start to see how God pursues you and did pursue you. If you're a Christian, you're still being pursued in some way because until you are holy, with a W, Christ's, and a capital H, I guess, holy in that regard too, he has to pursue you. He continues to make us like his son. And he's in pursuit of us in some way. And how, what does that look like? What's happening in this wonderful story? But specifically, he shows us, we see here the pursuit he has for Nineveh and us. And in it, we see that God does three things. He prepares a way, he stands in our way, and he draws us to the way. Okay? Prepares a way, stands in our way, and draws us to the way. So, prepares a way. Here's history class. If you come Tuesday mornings, you hear a lot of history about the ancient world, more than you ever desired, I'm sure. So, here's what we know about the book of Jonah. Jonah takes place, he is active as a prophet between 780 and 740 BC, in the 8th century. And his activity is sandwiched between two very important and strong Assyrian kings. The first one is Adad Narari. Is it coming up? Oh, we do have it here. It's not on the back, so I wasn't sure. We have Adad Narari, okay? Powerful king. And then you have a gap of about 40 years or so where things, I'll explain what's going on there in Assyria, because Assyrians were really good record keepers. So we, have, we know a lot about the Assyrians. And then Assyria's rise to strength in its real golden age, if you want to call it that, starts with a guy named Tiglath-Pileser III and in 745. So between 783 and 745, there's something that's going on in Assyria, and Jonah is active in it. And what we know is happening in this period is a degree of instability, uncertainty, and unrest in Assyria. And we know because they wrote it down, and they tell us this stuff. So first, there's all sorts of revolts. People are challenging Assyria. And if you don't know the history of the ancient world, it's always flip-flopping between who's running it. And when Assyria takes over, you have to understand they don't have the people to populate these countries. So what ends up happening is they have to try to bribe the governors to keep the local people in, in line. And inevitably, that doesn't last, and there's revolts. In fact, Assyria will fall to a Persian and Babylonian, uh, the Babylonian and Mede uh, mix as well in the coming years, the centuries. So there's instability. We know there's revolts. We know there was famines. We don't know if it was one long one or if it was consistent. 
We know there was um, plagues that hit Assyria. We know that there was an eclipse. And if you don't know the ancient world, when something happened in the heavens that they didn't understand, it was always a sign of something. When Julius Caesar was killed, there was a comet, you know, and people thought that meant something. And usually solar eclipses meant overturn. Something was going to happen. And so during all this instability in Assyria, the kings are very weak because they're so busy taking care of domestic problems that they can't be out imperializing, right? They can't be out dominating the other ancient Near Eastern countries. And so they're very busy looking inward. And the people are on tenterhooks. If you don't know what that is, you'll have to Google it. But they're very, um, they're very uneasy because just like today, when something goes wrong, we begin a witch hunt. Why did it go wrong? And how do we fix it? And so we know the Assyrians are reaching out to every god just like the sailors were. Who's doing this? Who's responsible? How do we fix this? And so it's actually not by accident that Jonah then is, rises up. Well, he's not, he doesn't really rise up. He's chosen and taken to Assyria to do this. It's almost as if, meaning it is, that God has prepared Assyria to be ready to hear this message because they're waiting for a reason. They need to know what's going on. And, and so when he comes, we actually see God orchestrating history. He's weaving it all together. And you don't know that if you're just reading the, the, the text because you don't see what's going on in the history. But the more you read the history, you see, my goodness, God is at work in all things. And we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, one of my challenges as a pastor is always try to encourage people to not just, when you have a question about the Bible, don't just Google it and read the five passages that answer your question. Read the whole Bible like a lot, and regularly. Because otherwise, what you do is you come up with only proof texts that answer your question, but you don't see the breadth of what God is doing. And when you do this and you read the prophets over and over, one of the things you notice is exactly what you see in Isaiah 9, 18 to 21, which is the relationship between our sin and God's wrath. Let me explain it, but let me read it first. God is here speaking to Israel, so similar to Jonah's time, because Israel is falling apart, there's social decay, and there's... Assyria is coming, so there's judgment coming to them. Here's what, what Isaiah says. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they, are, they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares, spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah, for all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. And so what Isaiah is saying here to Israel is there's two fires burning in the land. One is caused by your sin, the tit-for-tat cause-and-effect problems of your sin. God has made the world in such a way that when you sin, when you run away from God, that will inevitably become cannibalistic. It becomes self-destructive. Your sin will not just destroy some things, it'll destroy itself and you. It's that wonderful but ominous quote from Macbeth that says, um, and I put it, I'm going to put it up on the screen, or they will, bloody instruction which being taught returns to plague the inventor. That's sin. God has made the world in such a way that when you sin, it won't just stop a little, it'll continue and continue until it eats even itself away. This is, this is the nature. So Israel is suffering on one hand, as Isaiah says, wickedness burns like a fire. Your sin is devouring everything. You're to blame, Israel. But the very next verse, through the wrath of the Lord, the host, uh, Lord of hosts, 
the land is scorched. So you see what God is also saying. And it's this paradox, it's a mystery we have to wrestle with. Yes, your sin is your problem, and that's why you're suffering. But God's wrath is using your sin to harm you and to teach you something. So God is all at once making use of your sin, and dare I say, even at times bringing it to you, not your sin, but bringing evil upon you, bringing struggles to you. I've talked about Jonah. When he's thrown into the water, it sounds and feels like evil. And he's using it to try to do something. So we see God all through Scripture use doing this, this mystery. You're accountable for your sin, 100%. And yet God says, I will use that sin to not accomplish what it wants because if sin is allowed to run free, it will destroy itself and everything. But God won't allow it to accomplish that. He will use it for his purposes. And so we're seeing this here immediate, on the, right away. But, and look, look at how it shows up, right? The sin of Israel is being found as social decay. What is going on? He, he outlines it very plainly. People are being burned to keep injustice alive. He says people are like fuel. You're, you've become such a country and such a people now, uh, Israel and Nineveh similarly, that your evil is now fueled by what you're, you're devouring people. It just keeps happening. It's not just some. It's in everyone's hands. Everyone is responsible. You eat your own hand. And your brother is fighting brother, Manasseh versus Ephraim. It's a mess. Society is crumbling. But when society crumbles, it is not merely the experience that what you get from this automatic cause and effect relationship with your sin, it's also God saying, I'm doing it. I'm allowing you and bringing your sin to bear on you. I have a purpose for it. And that's, we can have great discussions about that mystery there. And why does he do it? Simple. And it may sound radical, but it's going to get more radical in a second. He loves Nineveh. He loves that city that is the most, at the time, the most proud, the most arrogant, the most cruel that was known. He loves them. Even now, as we pray, who don't, I don't know who it is in your life that you think is probably the worst. Most people say Hitler, right? I'm, I'm not bad, I'm, you know, I'm not great, but I'm not Hitler. That's, uh, Hitler gets lumped in there. But whatever that is in the world, is it Las Vegas? People talk about Vegas, or is it Washington? Whatever it is, is it Niagara Falls? Do you understand that you may have problems with it, but God loves them? loves them, and not just loves them, but look at what he says in, in, in Jonah, which mysteriously is left out of our translations, and it's, I'll explain why. First, four times he calls Nineveh great in the book, but in chapter 3, verse 3, which we read, he's refer, he refers to uh, uh, Nineveh as an exceedingly great city, but that is not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew literally, very literally, you can read it, well, if you could read Hebrew, it says, Ir Gadolah Elohim, which means the city, that, um, the city that God greatly cared for. So, it doesn't just say a little bit, it says it's this great city to God. Not just that it's great in stature, that it was big and powerful, but it literally says it was great to God. And the reason English translations will say exceedingly great is if you follow the verse, it seems to talk about how it's kind of like a godlike city. It's a big city, powerful, important, which is true. But do we dare to believe that the literal translation is literally right? Which actually coincides with chapter 4, verse 11, when he talks about how much he cares for the city. God actually loves Nineveh. He loves it. He cares for it. And for this reason, he is willing, not just willing, he's wanting them to repent. He cares for them. And so the first thing we see is that God is preparing them. He's preparing all of us. If you're a Christian, you're being prepared to be more like Christ. If you're not a Christian, understand 
all of your history is God at work. He may not have brought the things. He didn't bring the abusive parents. He didn't bring the alcohol. He didn't bring uh, the, the shame. He didn't bring those things to you. But he is making use of them to say, look, look at me. And I'm gonna, we're going to talk much more about that in a minute. So first thing is that God is active and he prepares a way. He's active in all things. This is why we need the prophets. History tells you the facts. Prophecy and prophets tell you why it happened. History will say, well, on 722 AD, BC, uh, Israel was sacked and exiled into Assyria. That's a fact. Prophecy says why it happened. It says it happened not just because Assyria was imperialistic, but because God is using it to judge them and to judge Assyria, which we'll talk about at some point. So, he prepares a way for us. He's on, he's on our tails. It's that old G.K. Chesterton uh, quote that the hound of heaven is on our track. And so he prepares a way. But then it's not just that. He also stands in our way. So a loving God cannot allow you to labor under the, under the delusion that you are innocent. You're not. No one is. None of us are. And so God comes and he stands directly in the way of Nineveh. And he says, through the message of Jonah, you are wrong. You're sinners. Everything you're doing is wrong. And there is a God. I am that God, he says. And I will judge you. Because regardless of whether you worship me or not, you are accountable to me, regardless. That's not a popular thing to say to anyone, especially not to Nineveh. So let me first, let's first, what is that message? Because I think there may be some, we haven't really thought that deeply about what the message is that Jonah brings. So Jonah gives us five Hebrew words, which come out to eight in our English generally, and it's fair. He says, this is the message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the sermon. Now, we know for a fact Jesus spoke much longer than the parables, much longer than his sermons, but you don't record everything. So it's pretty logical and pretty, pretty likely that Jonah didn't just, give, just, didn't just show up and yell five words and then run. Um, he probably spent those three days in Nineveh going to important places, to markets, to squares, to the right people, and he proclaimed this message to people. And this represents the summary of what that message is. But here's something important to notice. What isn't the message saying? What it isn't saying is convert and become a Jew. When he's talking about repentance, what he is not saying is he expects the Ninevites to become Jews. And if that sounds radical to you, let's just be logical. He doesn't say, throw away your idols and start worshiping the one and only Yahweh. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, be circumcised and become a covenant, be part of the covenant people. He doesn't say, stop following the epic of Gilgamesh and everything else. Instead, start reading the Torah and conforming your lives to the law. None of that happens. And so, clearly, it's a message of repentance. We'll get to what that is. But he's not necessarily coming and saying, I expect you all to be Jews. Fall in line. Now, that shouldn't sound radical, but it may. But, because especially for us, right? Because today, the church is a very different mandate. The Great Commission tells us very clearly, no, no, our job isn't just to proclaim judgment. Our job is to tell them to become disciples. To then, here's judgment, but here's grace, and now how to live and obey God. It's a different thing. But that's not what Jonah's being told. And we shouldn't be too caught off guard by that. Because what he is doing is exactly what God says he would do throughout the Old Testament. Again, if you read the Old Testament, you see this. In Jeremiah, actually, before we get to Jeremiah, Let's go back to how we else we know that this is what Jonah is saying, the king's decree. We know that Jonah's summary message is what he was talking about. Basically, he's saying there's a moral law and you're falling short of it. 
get in line or wrath is coming. Improve your conduct. And we know that's probably what Jonah was saying because not only does he say it, but when the king's decree comes out, it tells us what the king heard and what he believed because it tells us that they believed what Jonah said and God. And the decree says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may relent. So what does he think he's being told to do? Not to be circumcised, not to, be, uh, to become a hermetic Jew and, and to go to, the, to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices. He is being told very plainly, your life is not aligned with general revelation. You know in your conscience what you're doing is wrong, and I am that conscience telling you it's wrong, and I'm going to judge you. Fall in line. That is, that's Romans 1, this general call. And we know that this is what Jonah is saying. It's not inconsistent with the Old Testament because God literally says it. In Jeremiah 18, he says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. I'll explain the difference between relent and forgive, by the way, in a minute. So what is he saying? God is saying, listen, when the prophecy comes... God is not changing his mind. He's not saying, I was going to crush them, but you know what? Bad decision. I didn't foresee their, for their repenting. It's not what's happening. What happens when a prophecy comes as in this way as a warning, it's God saying, listen, this is the path you're on, and this is where it's leading. But my, my plan accounts for the opportunity for you to repent. Do you repent? Yes or no? And he, so it's not him changing his mind when he relents, and it's also not him forgiving Nineveh. And I'll explain that in a minute. It's pretty obvious, but I'll... Make that clear. So the prophecy then comes to cause them to turn from their evil ways. Why, though? And we're going to talk about why. What's the point of why? It ha- why, why does he then, if he's not forgiving them, he doesn't want them to convert, what's the point? Why does he accept it? All of this. But let me first, before we get there, let's not gloss over the incredible miracle that it is of what happens in Nineveh. The fact that a, a city, and arguably a nation, repents even, even if it's only, quote-unquote, to say, yes, we're falling short. We've, this mess we've caused is our own. We have wronged God, and we have to change. First, we know this. We know some people were saved. We know that. We know it didn't last because 100 years later, maybe it was a generation, probably not even a full generation of people. But we know some people were saved at simply the call to repent because of their evil. And that's not unusual because Rahab does that in Joshua too. She doesn't hear the call to, well, she's a woman, but no call to be circumcised, etc. But instead what she hears is God is using Israel and doing incredible things through them to crush other nations. And out of that fear and out of the awe that she feels, she is converted. God can do that. But we know that not everybody was because if it was a mass conversion and everything changed, we would have seen it in history and we would have seen it played out. So it's an imperfect repentance at best. But Let's not move past this. When the nation repents as it does, could you imagine any city, pick any city in this world, doesn't matter if it's what you think, a good one or a bad one. Do you see any city in our current world repenting like this? If somebody tells them God is against them? No. And you know how we know it? Because there's people like us, me, there's pastors, there's Christians, there's ministries, there's televangelists, there's pamphlets, there's guys on the street corner in Toronto with a microphone all yelling it, and no one is repenting. They're laughing. So the very miraculous thing that it takes for a nation and for a people to admit they're wrong is incredible. 
And God is doing something there. Jacques Ellul, I mentioned him last week, this French theologian, says, Nineveh, with its holy warlike orientation, accuses itself of violence. Nineveh, proud of its power and invincibility, ceases to be itself when it thus humbles itself. God is doing something incredible to turn a human heart around. As a pastor, I can say, there's a lot of things that, we, uh, that don't surprise me. We can do a lot of things in the world. Changing a human heart is the hardest thing on the... I can't do it. It's the greatest miracle. Not heaping up water, not mountains falling, not healing people. Changing a human heart is incredibly hard. And it can't be done by ourselves. And this is why, and I'll use my... Uh, I, at some point, you know, you had to mention Moby Dick um, in a Jonah series. <laughs> it had to happen. And Herman Melville's book is a wonderful book. It's long, and there's some parts that are boring, but it's worth reading. And uh, part of it, a guy named Ishmael, who's the, the star, I guess, the main character, he's, um, he's in Nantucket, and he goes into a chapel in Nantucket. And, of course, the pastor is a, is a guy who I imagine looks like the highliner fish sticks guy, but I'm not sure. <laughs> That's in my head. That's, uh, don't break the image. I don't want to see a movie because it'll make me think he's Brad Pitt or something. But, no, he's not. And he's a retired sea captain, and, he's, and I imagine he's like, yar, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And in his sermon about Jonah... He says such, brilliant, such a brilliant thing. He says this, but all the things that God would have us do are hard for us to do. Remember that. And hence, he oftener commands us than endeavors to persuade. If we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. The hardest part about obeying God is dying to ourselves, saying, I'm not the boss. And so when I hear about Nineveh repenting, and listen, there was real repentance People were saved because of Jonah's ministry. God was at work, no doubt about it. But there's obvious questions. Well, what happened to that repentance? But regardless of what happened to it, that was God at work for the, for the sake of that city, for the mercy of that city. 100%. We cannot ignore that, nor should we ignore it. Now, when we when, before we move to the last point, when this is our message, we go out into the world, our message must stand in the way of the world. When you are speaking to the world and you're witnessing to the world, there is a time for just showing them, living out, raising your children well, serving the community well, being generous, and just modeling the gospel. But modeling the gospel alone is not sufficient. We must stand in the way of the world as salt irritates the world as well as preserves right, and enriches. So we have to get in front of the world. And, when, and I'll be frank, we've had people who will say... Redeemer, since you've came, come, Carl, talks too much about sin. I don't care. We have to tell the world what it's doing is wrong. And when we say, I mean, Jesus actually rebukes his own brothers in John 7. They say, go to Jerusalem. Anybody who wants to be a big shot has got to go to the New York City, right? That's where you go. And Jesus' response is, it's any time is right for you because the world doesn't hate you because you, I tell the world what is wrong. I tell them that they're wrong and they hate it. And so, when we come to the world, we must. Now, it's gracious. Yes, we have to be careful. Yes, it has to be contextual. But if we are the sort of people, and I know I've done this, and we probably all have, you have family members and friends who are running away from God, they're living lives of sin, and they're headed for destruction. And you don't say anything to them because you tell yourself the lie that you're keeping the peace. Because if I don't tell them, but Carl, and listen how good it sounds, but it's a lie. If I tell them this, if I confront my so-and-so about their sexual lifestyle, if I confront this person about the way they're speaking, the way they're spending money, the way they're living, then family dinners will be ruined. 
Not just that, I may break that relationship. So as a result, if I break that relationship, what good have I done? Because then I'll have no other chance to witness to them. Hold on. Until you tell them they're sinners, you're, just, you're not doing anything for them at all those family dinners anyway. You're not doing anything. At some point, I don't know when that point is, we must stand in the way of the world and say, this is wrong. Because why would they ever repent if they thought the life was great? See, we have people who, who uh, wouldn't even ask you how many people have gone through cancer treatments. Would you have gone through chemotherapy knowing if you, if you didn't have cancer? No. You must know you are sick before you'll ever accept the remedy and before you'll see the remedy as good and gracious. Otherwise, you'll say, what's the point? So like Jonah, we must stand. We must at some point tell the world what it's doing is wrong. Yes, we have to be sensitive. Yes, we have to be gracious. But we must do it. If our, if, if our message isn't one of sin that needs to, be saved, needs to be repented of so that God can then save you from your sinfulness, then I'm sorry, you're not preaching the gospel. And that's, it's hard, so we have to work together, we have to be gracious, we have to, we have to train one another, equip and ask questions and sometimes repent ourselves of how poorly we do it. Rajona may have to repent about how he did it, I don't know. But that's the second thing. So God prepares a way, but then he stands in our way and says, you cannot continue doing what you're doing. And if you do, death is on the other side. Then comes this beautiful part, well, it's all beautiful, this beautiful part where he then draws us to him. And here's where we're going to answer that question. Why does God relent? If he knows that, I don't know, the majority or some of the people or uh, whoever in, in Nineveh, if he knows this repentance is not sincere, it's mostly just a fear-based repentance, then why does he forgive them at all? Or any, does he forgive them? No, he doesn't, but I'll explain that. So why does he relent? And, and I remember, I've even read a couple of commentators who I would not suggest you read, and I won't say their names, because they then say, God is just unjust. Because if God would accept an imperfect repentance from them, then he doesn't care about them. He's not being just. My, my question to them and to everyone else is this. Can you tell me one time there was a repentance that was perfect? Did Israel, for instance, ever repent, and did they keep fruit? Did they make fruit in keeping with their repentance? Anybody here repent and then have a perfect life thereafter? No. So, but one, <laughs> oh, okay. So here's the simple fact. God always accepts imperfect repentance. Always. And I, it's not in the notes, but this is why Jesus gets baptized, right? When Jesus gets baptized, he's not just showing you a model. Understand, if Jesus is just there to show you what you should do, he could have left a manual. Why does he in stealth come and he gets baptized? And remember, what, baptize, what baptism is he getting? It's the baptism of John, which is the baptism for the repentance of sins. Jesus has no sin. Why is he repenting? He's repenting so that when your crummy sin or crummy repentance comes to God that is riddled in your fear and your only desire is not to serve God, you just want to escape the flames. When that comes to him, he then says, that's a crummy repentance, Carl, but my son has done it for you perfectly. So, good job. And so, God always accepts imperfect repentance. Nineveh is not any more wicked than Israel. They're not. Except for the fact that they're not covenant people in this regard. So, with that out of the way, why does God relent? Why does he give them a time of saying, I'm going to stop, I'm going to hold off judgment for a time? Why? What's the point? First, understand this. He does it to Israel all the time. I'm reading the book of Kings on my own time. Every time there's a decent king, not even a good one, a decent king, God says, even Ahab, 
Ahab is like, it literally says in the book of Kings that there's never been a king worse than Ahab. No one has ever done more wickedness than Ahab. And yet it's, uh, when he repents, clearly in fear, God says, because he's done this, I won't bring the calamity, I will relent, and I won't bring the calamity in his time. See what he's doing? He's not forgiving Ahab. He's saying, I'm going to hold off bring calamity. He can't stop it. In fact, he tells every king in the book of Kings, Babylon is coming. Assyria is coming. You cannot stop it because your sin must be judged. And you can't undo that judgment by your nice behavior. But I will relent. Now, why does he relent and say, I'll give them time? Why does he do it for Nineveh? The answer, I think, there's a lot of things we could say. For me, it comes from when I spent time at the University of Toronto in my undergrad. Uh, it was the most glorious time for me. A nerd like me flourished. Because downtown Toronto, you can see it's Nineveh in some ways. Everything is there. And the campus is right by the ROM and the AGO, the Art Gallery of Ontario, and the museum. And so as a student and in those days, many moons ago, black and white televisions. Um, no, not that old. I feel old. I go to universities now and those kids look like this big and I'm like, oh my goodness, do your parents know you're here? Uh, I can't believe how young they look. They look so young. Anyway, sorry, side note. But I was fortunate enough, you could go to the ROM for like $2 if you had your student card. So I would go a minimum of every week to either or, or both of them, sometimes daily, to those places and I would just sit and eat my lunch and stare at the artifacts, stare at the art. And here's what always happened in my head. I would see a piece of art, and then I'd walk, if I liked it, I'd look up to it, and I'd try to see who, who designed it, who, wrote, who painted it, or whatever. Then I would go, if, when I had time, to the library, because the internet wasn't as big a deal, couldn't just Google Wikipedia, and I would try to figure out, who is that artist? Because I wanted to know, not just the art, but I wanted to know who it was who dreamed it up. I wanted to know more about the person who has brought that thing into my life. And so, when God comes to us and he relents and the cancer for the non-believer is cured, the hope comes in the midst of hopelessness for the non-believer. Understand, he's not doing that so that you will have more years of hating him and rebelling against him. He's doing it in hopes that you will look for the artist, that you will see the artwork of the great artist and say, who is this God who would dare to relent of all and repent or, take, or, or withhold and undo the, the evil that I have done? And so his desire is that Nineveh and all of us would search to then say, not just that he's relented, but who is this God who does this? Who is this? How would he, would you, would you continue to search for us and go and continue to do this? And again, this is why it's important that the words are there. He doesn't say he forgives Nineveh. He doesn't say he forgives Israel and Judah when the kings and Josiah and these, these decent kings show up and are good. He says, I'll relent. But here's why. Repentance that is fear-based cannot save. If you repent of something and it's purely for the fear, that's a good start. But what fear-based repentance will do is it'll make you hate you and it'll make you hate God. Because it'll hate, first you'll hate yourself because all you're going to hear, and Canada is littered with people like this, this church may have people in it like this, all you have ever heard, and that's the fault of us pastors sometimes who don't know how to communicate the gospel rightly, all you've heard is God is angry and you're a failure. And so all you've heard is that. And if that's all you hear, you may repent at first because you say, he's right. I have made a shipwreck of my life. Look at what my drinking has done. Look at what my choices have done. But if that is the only message you get, what ends up happening? You become a miserable, depressed person because you think I'm useless. I continue to fail. I can't please anyone, not even the God who's supposed to love me. I can't please him either. I'm terrible. So you hate yourself. And then what happens, if not before that, but certainly after, is this, you then hate God. 
Because then you're going to say, he knows I can't overcome this. He knows I'm too weak for it. And look what he's done. He continues to set the bar too high. He's the kind of mean jerk boss who says, yeah, you get a bonus as soon as you meet these targets, which are ones he knows you can never get to. And so you become bitter towards God, and then you become the person who's social media and in a basement hammering Christians and God because you can't imagine why we would ever fall for a God who is so brutal and so judgmental and always just trying to scare us into the kingdom. And so God is saying that's not enough. The fear-based repentance, this wrath to the nations is what they deserve. This is what's going to happen. But the hope is that they will then use that time in between to seek God, to seek the artist, to seek the merciful one. They don't. And this is what you're going to hear in Nahum is they didn't. I don't know how many people repented. I know they must have. And this is why I know they must have. Jesus says very clearly on the last days, the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn this nation, which means some of them were saved. That much we, we know. How many? I don't, that's not my, that's above Carl's pay grade. I don't know. But some were. Now, the hope is that they would have gone looking for more. And here's where we will close. What would they have found if they went looking? If they put, peeked behind the curtain to say, okay, it's great that this God is willing to do this, Jonah, but who is this God? Because none of our gods would do this. They wouldn't give us warning. By the way, if God didn't have a desire to see them turn from their ways, he would have just killed them. He would have just destroyed them. He would have been right to do it. Instead, he gives them time. So ideally, they would have sought, and some, I assume, did seek out this Yahweh, this king, this God. Though, interestingly, the name Yahweh never shows up in, in their repentance, just the name God. So, what would they have found? Well, first they would have found what Jonah later will say, that he is merciful and compassionate. Jonah knows. But let me close with this, this first, this idea. Because, again, we have to touch on it at some point. In the New Testament, when Jesus speaks about the sign of Jonah, what's happening? He's there and he's talking to the crowds and to the Pharisees and they're demanding a sign. Much like this world, if God is real, why does he allow this to happen? Why doesn't he just show up? Why doesn't he create a, a, a clean engine and clean energy source? Whatever. They want a big sign. And Jesus says, well, I'll read it. This is uh, Luke 11. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, we know what that means simply, which is that Jesus is going to be in the belly of death at the same three days, like Jonah was in a whale. That's fine, but go further. There's more, much more happening. Is Jesus saying here, you're not getting a sign because he's spiteful and bitter? Is he just, because this is what I would have done. This is why I'm glad I'm not God. I would have said, you stinkers. None of it's going to help. I could do anything I want. I could make, you know, I could make give Ray Charles sight. I could bring Sinatra back from the grave to sing a song for you. It's not going to make a difference. So I'm not going to show you any signs, right? I could have done that. And th many people think that's what Jesus is doing here, that he's just being spiteful to an extent, saying, no, it doesn't matter. I don't have to answer your questions. You've proved it's not going to make a difference for you anyway. That's far too human. Jesus is perfectly human, but this is far too uh, us, a response. What Jesus is saying is this. If I show you another sign, then you're going to be awed by the power of God. But if you want to know God, you don't look at his power, you look at his weakness. Don't expect a sign. Instead, see the sign that has come, which is God dying for you. Not God conquering the world, but God coming and dying. And if you see the weakness of God, you will know God. The power that comes before Nineveh to shake the foundations of their empire is terrifying but they don't know God solely as a God of fear. 
They have to know him as the God who is going to die for them and will die. And so when we are preaching, if if you're a Christian, first of all, understand that. God is not angry with you when you sin, when you sin as a Christian. You shouldn't sin. Simple, you should not sin. And if you continue to live a habitual sin, sinful life, you have to wonder if you're saved at all. But God's anger was all poured out on the cross on his son for us. So now when things come to us as Christians, we know God is doing it to make us more like him, to shape us. It's discipline, not punishment. If you're not a Christian, I can't say the same thing. There is consequences, but he is hoping, it's C.S. Lewis says, that grace beats upon the, da- the, the hearts of the damned like sound beats on the ears of the deaf, but they will not and eventually cannot answer. And that is what we're saying. You can be shocked. You can be saved from cancer. You can see miraculous things, but until you go beyond and look at who God is and see that he took all this supreme power and used it to die for you, when that happens, you become a Christian. And you become a person that will not just repent, but that repent will last and last. And you'll continually repent over and over. As Luther says, the life of a Christian should be daily repentance of always realizing we're falling short. But until you see the weakness of God, you're never going to repent like that. And that's the God who's here now. That's the God in our midst telling you you're a sinner. Let's pray.